Good morning and welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten chatting with you from Ottawa, Canada this morning. As longtime listeners of our show uh, know, each and every week uh, I uh, probe the weekly Torah portion, the parasha as it's known in Hebrew, and try and unpack some of the secret meanings and hidden meanings and less obvious meanings uh, behind the words of the Torah. This week, we're reading from the second parasha, the second weekly reading in the second book of the Torah, known as uh, Shemot, Exodus, and the parasha is known as Va'era, and I appeared is the usual translation. It begins in the sixth chapter of Exodus and continues pretty much to the end of the ninth chapter. Let me offer an overview of the parasha before we begin to delve in depth. God reveals um, to Moses, employing the four expressions of redemption. Take out the children of Israel from Egypt, deliver them from their enslavement, redeem them, and acquire them as his own chosen people at Mount Sinai. He promises to bring them to the land that he offered to the patriarchs as their eternal heritage. Moses and Aaron repeatedly come before Pharaoh in this parasha to demand in the name of God, let my people go so that they may serve me in the wilderness. Pharaoh repeatedly refuses. And then we begin what most of you will remember as the plagues, though the plagues are preceded by this contest of magicians. Aaron's staff turns into snakes and swallows the magic sticks of the Egyptian sorcerers. The plagues begin following that. The waters of the Nile turn to blood. Swarms of frogs overrun the land. Lice infest all men and beasts. Hordes of wild animals invade the cities. A pestilence kills the domestic animals. Painful boils afflict the Egyptians. For the seventh plague, fire and ice combine to descend from the skies, as the text calls it, devastating hail. And still, as the text reminds us, the heart of Pharaoh was hardened and he would not let the children of Israel go, as God had said to Moses. With me this morning to unpack this fascinating parasha is Rabbi Jack Luxemburg, Rabbi Emeritus at Temple Bethany in Rockville, Maryland. Rabbi Luxemburg served 35 years as the rabbi of that congregation, and was, in fact, the first full-time rabbi of Temple Beth Me, and his contributions to all facets of the congregation's growth enabled it to grow from a rather small congregation of perhaps 150 to 200 members to, at its peak, over 1,600 family members. Rabbi Luxembourg is known throughout the community as a scholar, an activist for social justice, and a uh, person who believes strongly in the importance 
of Israel and the dream of a state for the Jewish people. He is the only rabbi to have completed a study grant from the March of Dimes to train at, at Georgetown University Hospital in the field of human genetics and counseling human genetic problems. He received his doctoral degree in pastoral theology from the Wesley Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C., as well as his master's in Hebrew letters and ordination as a rabbi from Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion in Cincinnati, Ohio. It is a pleasure to uh, welcome back uh, one of the generation's uh, wisest rabbis, Rabbi Jack Luxemburg. Uh, thank you, Rabbi Garten. Uh, payment is in the mail. This week's parasha follows the introduction to the book of Exodus in uh, the parasha known as Shmot, uh, names. And we have this um, interesting narrative in which uh, the previous parasha tells us about Moses, uh, saved uh, by Pharaoh's daughter, raised in the Pharaoh's home. And then through a series of interesting uh, coincidences, um, discovers that he is, in fact, of the Jewish people. And uh, due to his uh, pursuit of justice and his character, he's forced to flee Egypt to the uh, wilderness of Midian. And there he confronts uh, God in the famous episode known as the burning bush. And it's the first time that Moses meets um, the God of the Israelite people. And uh, Moses, not uh, quite knowing what is going on, uh, says to um, the bush and to the voice that emanates from the bush, who are you? And he receives a very elliptical answer. Um, asher, yeah, asher. Yeah, I will be what I will be, or I will uh, be what you discern me to be. And this morning, we don't want to uh, discuss that answer, but rather we want to pick up where uh, this Torah portion begins. And it begins with God being much more definitive about um, what appellation we should use to describe God. And let me read it for our listeners. Um, so at the end of the parasha, uh, God says to Moses, you shall see, soon see what I will do to Pharaoh. He shall let them go because of the greater might. Indeed, because of a great might, he shall drive them from his land. And then it says, Elohim el Moshe, vayomer Elah. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am Adonai. I appeared to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob as El Shaddai, but I did not make myself known to them by my name, Adonai. So in a few chapters, we now see three different um, titles um, for the God of Israel. And perhaps you, we can begin our conversation by you helping uh, listeners understand why the Torah feels the need for these three terms. Well, I, I think, thank you for the synopsis. Uh, I, I think that it is intriguing, and we could go on endlessly, especially with the exploration of, as you call it, the elliptical phrase, I am what I am, I am what I will be, uh, on and on, which I, I think it, it 
points to the uh, the boundless nature of the divine. Uh, here, as you point out, uh, God speaks to Moses uh, and says, um, uh, He says, I am, and we get the term Adonai, how we read it, but the letters in Hebrew are Yudhe Vavhe, the tetragrammaton, the four letter name for God, which we really don't know how to vocalize. Uh, in some scholarly places, uh, it's Yahweh, it, 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 just to, to point to that formulation, or Jehovah. But we really don't know how it's to be pronounced. Uh, even in our own tradition, it was pronounced only by the high priests on the high holiday uh, on Yom Kippur as he entered the Holy of Holies alone uh, to pray on behalf of the Jewish people and seek God's forgiveness and the people's atonement. But the term here, according to the commentators, uh, Rashi in particular, uh, suggests that God is revealing to Moses the uh, the necessary and appropriate aspect of the divine, which Moses needs to uh, must apprehend in order to carry out his mission. And what is that? That is the aspect of the divine which fulfills promises. It is the aspect of divine fidelity. For after all, God's redemption of our Israelite ancestors is in fulfillment of a promise made to the patriarchs and matriarchs in, in the book of Genesis. In, in a, God tells Abraham that his descendants will be enslaved in Egypt. And God promises Abraham that they will be redeemed from there and return to the land of Abraham, to the land of Israel, to the land that has been promised to the Israelites, promised to their ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Moses now is the one of the many instruments of the fulfillment of that promise. It seems to me that God, in revealing this aspect of the divine to Moses, is actually uh, fortifying Moses to say that one, one of the aspects of divine nature is fidelity, is to fulfill the promise made. And we know, that, as you pointed out, that through the instrumentalities of the plagues and other events, uh, this will ultimately be fulfilled. And God's fidelity, his covenant fidelity, fulfilling the promise that was made to the patriarchs and matriarchs, will now be uh, on display, not only display to Moses, but all the Israelite people, and by extension, by the Egyptians and all the world. As you were quoting Rashi, that uh, northern French uh, medieval commentator, um, and he identifies um, the four Hebrew letters, which are all uh, without vowels, which leads us to be unclear about how to pronounce it. Um, it as the term that indicates God the fulfillment of promises, or I am the God who fulfills promises, um, how do we understand for our listeners that the term used to describe God to the patriarchs was a different term, or at least in our Torah portion, um, it reads, look, I spoke to your ancestors with the term El Shaddai. Mm. Was El Shaddai only a promise maker, but not a fulfilled, fulfiller, one who fulfills promises? Or is there something deeper there? Well, I, I think that every aspect of the divine is, is obvious. 
theologically, I believe, is always present. But what we apprehend or what God chooses to reveal may differ under under circumstances or related to the spiritual capacity of individuals to 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 understand and and to receive that that uh, revelation. Remember, to the patriarchs, God made promises. God comes, uh, I think, as El Shaddai, I, I think, mostly understood uh, as a formula that, that reflects God's power in the world. I have the power to do this. I will do this. But the fulfillment of that promise is something that the patriarchs do not live to see. It happens, you know, a thousand, a millennia after their, uh, or almost after their lifetimes. So what is, so what's interesting is that Rashi argues, actually, I think, with the, with the, the translation of, of that verse. It, it, it's generally translated, um, uh, I, I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as El Shaddai, but I did not make myself known to them by my name, yud heh I didn't make myself known to them. So Rashi said that um, if, if that were to be the exact translation, the, he, the Hebrew should be hodieni. I, I, I did not make myself known to them. But the Hebrew is nodati, meaning I was not known to them. So the question that Rashi is raising, which I think is a really interesting one, is this the apprehension of the divine of uh, a a function of, a, of the capacity uh, of human beings to apprehend the sacred? Or is it a function of what God chooses in divine wisdom to make accessible to those human beings at that time in that place? And I think Rashi is really arguing um, that it, it, was, it was really not, that it was God making uh, a decision as to how our ancestors were to apprehend them, apprehend the divine. Is it also possible that the text, following on the commentator, is saying something about uh, the difference in who Moses is uh, versus who the patriarchs are? I mean, Moses is this uh, person who has no family lineage. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are all... Uh, associated um, through lineage and through genetics to the initial uh, charge by uh, the deity uh, from Abraham and Abraham to Isaac, his son, and from Isaac to his son, Jacob. But Moses is not introduced in any way as part of that lineage. Well, we know that we know that Moses is of the tribe of, uh, of Le- Levi. Right. So... And so he has he has a claim to that spiritual heritage through one of the sons of Jacob, uh, at, at best. At best, that makes him until the Levites are designated for special service to God later in Torah. He he is as one of our teachers used to say a garden variety type Jew. Yes, I mean he is a Israel. He he has he has no he has. He does not have your. I think you're correct. He does not have a, a claim, uh, and I think this actually is very important. He does not have a claim to any uh, superseding, uh, you know, uh, dis- descent. He, he's he's not 
singled out because he's famous for having been born of a certain lineage. Right. So therefore, uh, in saying that, Moses is chosen um, for reasons differing from the uh, patriarchs. Um, and is it possible that the change of name also refers to somehow um, the difference between Moses individual with certain character traits that distinguishes him from those who came before him as leaders of families? Um, or in another way of putting this, Moses is now going to lead the people of Israel and his predecessors in truth were only leading family groups. Oh, there, there were, there were clans, big clans. Well, big clans. I mean, numbers are big, but certainly not all of the tribes, right? There's nobody who leads all the tribes of Jacob. Um, once they get into Egypt, certainly not that we're aware of. But, oh, correct. And, and- and, and maybe that's part of the problem. Uh, maybe the, their, their, their fractiousness may have made them easy prey to a pharaoh that wished to enslave them. That's very possible. But I, 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 I think here I, I would point to mission in, 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 in terms of what distinguishes Moses from the patriarchs and matriarchs. Uh, the, the patriarchs and matriarchs, are, are, are those who awaken to the presence of God in the world. And, 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 and the significance of, of that and the importance of, 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 as you said, building those families and that tradition uh, that grows with them uh, until they, are, they find themselves in Egypt and multi- having multiplied to great number, all of whom now, all these Israelites now, in not only descendants genealogically of the patriarchs, but inheritors of their religious, of their spiritual vision. Part of that spiritual vision, at least as revealed as we said earlier to Abraham, is, is that our ancestors were intended, for whatever God's reason, to sojourn in, in, in Egypt, to, to suffer through a period of slavery, and but also to become a liberated people. And that's, that's also part of our heritage that is very important to, to the Jewish experience and the Jewish worldview. We are a liberated people. God made a promise to our ancestors to liberate us. And around our Seder tables every Passover, we reenact that liberation. We celebrate it and we reflect on what obligations that places upon us uh, as a liberated people. What's our obligation towards those who are yet awaiting their own liberation in this world? So, so does that have a, a similarity to uh, liberation theology that we would find in um, a Christian tradition? Uh, I, I, I think there are some, I do believe there's some connections. As uh, we talked earlier, uh, uh, we are uh, at the end of the week uh, in, in which we, uh, as we're talking, we're at the end of the week in which we celebrated the birthday of Dr. Martin Luther King. Uh, I have to admit that has been on my mind. And, um, you know, you know, it's later in a few verses on from what we've been discussing is a chapter that says, God says, well, now I've heard the moaning and groaning of the Israelites. So I'm getting ready. And now, now the, the, the drama of redemption will begin. And uh, our sages ask, you know, you know, God was not hearing the moaning and groaning for the last 400 years. 
but it, 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 it may be not. There's a difference between moaning and groaning. Boy, boy, this work is so hard. This is really terrible. As opposed to moaning and groaning and saying, I shouldn't have to live this way. Human beings are not meant to be enslaved by other human beings. This is wrong. And when the tone of the moaning and groaning, and this is, I think, part of liberate, uh, liberation theology for all people, that, that, a per, that persons are, uh, I think the Torah is telling us, and the sages imply, that a, that a, a, a people becomes ready to, for liberation when they, recognize that their huma- when they recognize that their humanity is being violated, and, and that they need not live that way anymore. And I think that, 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 that that's what the Torah is telling us about the change in the tone and what the Midrash, our sages, and they're telling, retelling and delving into the story of the Torah. If I hear you correctly, it sounds as if the tradition says that the Israelites were willing to accept slavery because they saw no other... Um, vision of themselves. They had no other uh, concept of themselves as other than slaves. But when they make the uh, transition to the possibility of them being free people, then God hears that change in their voice and becomes aware that they are now ready is that what you're suggesting? I, I, I don't want to say this is some big chiddush, that this is some, some big new <laughs> insight that, that uh, emanates from, from my, my thinking, but rather that I, I want to share it with you and, your, and our listeners uh, this important insight, especially at this time when we're thinking about the message of Dr. King. And we're looking around the world, unfortunately, and we're seeing many people who are still relate, re- awaiting their day of liberation, awaiting their day of uh, of redemption that's still waiting the, the day when God fulfills his promise uh, of, of freedom, you know, for all humankind. And yes, I think that when, per, when I think the sages were wise saying that when people recognize that they, you know, need long, need no longer need to accept the circumstances that others have imposed upon them and rest- of, of oppression and persecution, then that's the first, that'll, that, that, awareness is the first step towards liberation, whether that's physical or spiritual or emotional, social. Uh, we can. I, I think that idea is applicable in many circumstances. And it should be inspiring to us, and I think is implied, by the way, Rabbi Garten, in these different God names. It means that things need not be the way they always are, right? That, that, that the, using that future tense implies the possibility of change uh, tra- tra- uh, transformation is, is really very in- important. And I think that El Shaddai is a name that allows us to recognize the power of the divine in the world and in our lives. And uh, the yud heh vav is is not only a re- an aspect of the, div- uh, the divine name and an attribute of the divine, but in some ways is a challenge to us to be to be faithful, to, to keep, you know, be faithful to our traditions, show our own covenant fidelity. It's interesting. In my introduction, I m- mentioned that you've um, devoted a significant part of your professional life to the cause of um, the establishment of the state of Israel and its um, 
being welcoming to Jews of all uh, perspective, religious perspectives. As you were speaking and quoting the sages, it struck me that Zionism had a little bit of that flavor to it, that um, when the Jews of Europe uh, began to recognize that they no longer had to live behind the ghetto walls or no longer had to um, uh, collude with societies that were rampant with anti-Semitism, they looked for a way to actualize these divine promises. Um, there's a little hint in what you're saying there in Rabbi uh, Cook and his sense of religious Zionism, uh, which um, is important for our people, and maybe there is something powerful for other oppressed people to look within their own traditions about what constitutes the uh, notion of um, first steps towards redemption and first steps towards liberation. Um, I want to thank you for that because I think it's quite um, an interesting uh, insight, uh, certainly for our people. Um, in the few moments that I um, that we have, um, even though I think it's a fairly challenging uh, phrase, the, the Torah portion does introduce this notion of the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. And for our listeners who might have picked up on that in my introduction, I'm wondering if you could give them a quick overview of how tradition sees that uh, phrase. Did God cause um, Pharaoh to harden his heart and therefore increase the number of plagues? Or is there a more nuanced understanding of that verse? Shall we do another half hour? I, I think that, that what's interesting, of course, is that the question you raise is one that even troubled our sages, because if God is is imposing this uh, this this hardening, uh, which is one way to translate the word kaved, the word of hardening the heart, um, then it is almost as if God appears to be shutting off uh, the opportunity for Pharaoh to to repent and, and to reconsider his course of action, which, which troubled our sages as well. So there are a couple of things that I think that, that we, we can consider. One is the word kaved, which, mean, which also means uh, to, to honor and it, pride. And it, 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 it is, uh, I think, within the, the experience of many of us, to see people who, whose even as their intentions or their schemes are frustrated, their pride prevents them from uh, fr from climbing down from the limb, as we would say, right? Um, so this may be, and, and, and we see that. So it, it's not that God, understanding this, it may not be that God hardened Pharaoh's heart in, in an active way, but to say that it, 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 Pharaoh suffered from a human, uh, a human characteristic, uh, his hubris, he... Uh, he was so prideful, he, he, he couldn't, in the face of his courtiers and his, and his syncopants, uh, back down. So we're going to have to leave it at that very um, insightful um, perspective 
and ask our listeners to read carefully the text. My guest this morning was Rabbi Jack Luxemburg, Rabbi Emeritus of Temple Bethany in Rockville, Maryland. I want to thank him for helping us unpack this week's Torah portion. Um, you can hear our recording on CHRI 99.1 FM or as a podcast on chri.ca or on iTunes or on uh, YouTube. For Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts, I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten uh, saying shalom and thank you and have a good day. Thank you.